0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In
1: 1999, Goldman Sachs, the most revered firm on Wall Street, went public. And almost immediately, it started impressing investors.
2: The last record was set in the second quarter of the year 2000, which, as we all remember, was uh, right when the Nasdaq hit its peak and then crashed.
1: A decade later, not only did Goldman survive the financial crisis, it thrived in its wake. In 2009, the year after rivals Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers collapsed into insolvency, Goldman posted its largest ever profit.
0: Just one month after paying back $10 billion in federal bailout money, Goldman Sachs reports a blowout quarter. CNNMoney.com's Poppy Harlow is joining us live from New York with the latest. Pretty impressive, right?
1: I mean, $3.4 billion, nothing to laugh at. I mean, serious profit here for Goldman Sachs in the second quarter on revenue of $13.8 billion in numbers better than even... It now. left investors asking one question.
0: Aaron, is it possible that Goldman Sachs is really that much better? than every other firm on Wall Street.
1: But also led to some rather unfavorable comparisons beyond Wall Street.
0: Recent issue of Rolling Stone, Goldman was characterized as a giant vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money.
1: That vision of Goldman might be the one that many still have. But those who've been paying closer attention over the last decade have seen it slip behind its rivals and tried to expand into new businesses with mixed success. All this culminated in Goldman booking one of its worst quarterly results for a decade in January.
2: Goldman Sachs reported a staggering 69% drop in fourth quarter profits on Tuesday. The legendary Wall Street firm is struggling amid a slowdown in deal-making and a slumping wealth management business. Its
1: chief executive, David Solomon, has said the firm tried to do too much too fast.
0: You know, we did some things right. We didn't execute on some others. I think, and I said this on the earnings call yesterday, we probably took on more than we should have, you know, too much too quickly.
1: What is going wrong at Goldman Sachs? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets the economy,
2: and the world of business. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fulwood. In Taipei, I'm Mike Bird. In Morzine, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. And
1: in today's show, the humbling of Goldman Sachs.
3: First, we'll go back in time to examine the backdrop to Goldman's rise.
2: We have had a bad banking situation. Some of our bankers have shown themselves either incompetent or dishonest in their handling of the people's funds. Then,
0: we will explore where things started to go wrong. The politicians, the regulators, introduced a lot of different reforms, which were really a direct attack on Goldman's business model.
1: And finally, we will look at how the firm is viewed now.
4: This storied, famous firm with its own mythology and legends that, that culture and reputation is something that is at odds with the very mediocre pedestrian and humdrum valuation.
1: Tom, Mike, hello.
3: Hey, Alice. Hello.
1: Mike, what are you up to in Taipei?
3: Just dropping in, sort of doing my job, hanging out, talking to people, um, e- eating fried chicken and, and beef noodles and, and stuff like that. <laughs> But never mind that, I want to know what Tom is doing in France.
2: Well, I'm actually here on holiday skiing, but you know, recording money talks with you both, it's highlight of the week and, and wouldn't miss it.
1: I am. Um, I'm very envious of the skiing bit, of course, rather than the uh, very diligent working on your holiday bit.
3: See, working from the slopes is a real upgrade to working from home, uh, if only because the raclette is better.
2: Yes, uh, at this point, I think I might be more cheese than man, Mike. (laughs) But anyway, we're here to discuss the excellent piece that you wrote, Alice, which was actually the cover story of last week's paper with the headline of Goldman Sags." Yes, that's right. At one point, we actually
1: considered the tagline
2: Goldman Sucks,
1: which uh, we decided was a little too puerile in the end. And listeners would already know that if they got our brilliant newsletter cover story, which dives into the process of uh, how we decide what the cover image and the, the tagline should be. But I want to start off this episode with a little behind the scenes stuff, too, by talking about how and why we decided to run this story on Goldman Sachs now. I started covering Wall Street at the start of 2019. So it was just a couple of months after David Solomon had taken over as the CEO of Goldman Sachs. There was a brilliant Business Week cover that I remember that had the tag change at the top and it displayed Lloyd Blankfein, who was the outgoing CEO, and David Solomon, who was going to replace him, displayed their bold heads from the eyebrows up next to one another, which was very clever. And in January 2018, the market capitalization of Morgan Stanley for the first time post-crisis, after 12 years in second place, had eclipsed that of Goldman Sachs. And we described this event as a parable of post-crisis finance. So a victory for the idea that stable businesses like Wealth Management, which Morgan Stanley had expanded into, were in, and the sexy but volatile ones, which were Goldman's bread and butter, like trading desks and trading businesses, were out. And at the time, Goldman was under something of a cloud because of the 1MDB scandal in which it had issued billions of dollars' worth of bonds for the Malaysian government and the proceeds had all vanished, And Mr. Blankfein has sown the seeds of a transition into boring banking businesses at Goldman as well. It had launched a consumer bank, Marcus, in 2016. And so you had this new boss coming in. He'd just taken charge. It was a difficult time for the firm with the 1MTB scandal. And he had this quite long to-do list as well. And Four years have passed, and there have been a few things over the past six months or so that have really made me think that now is the time to weigh in on how well Goldman has done at this attempt to reinvent itself. So one is that the the post-pandemic frenzy in capital markets, which was a real tailwind for Goldman, has cooled off. And the second is the size and scale of the losses in its consumer lending business have really started to add up. So I spoke with my editor at the time, Patrick Fowles, and a few other of my colleagues, and everyone was gripped by this story, probably because it's Goldman Sachs. And so I wanted to bring Patrick on to talk a little bit about why we decided to go so big on this story now. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
4: Hey, Alice. Great to be here.
1: So, Patrick, what was it that made you think that now was a sort of interesting time to take a long look at Goldman Sachs?
4: Well, The Economist puts individual companies on on the cover relatively infrequently, and it typically has to pass a few thresholds. One is it has to be really well-known and, and represent something bigger. So Goldman Sachs obviously uh, is well-known and, and represents Wall Street. Another is that we have an angle, you know, something distinctive to say. And in this case, you, Alice, had been thinking about Goldman's performance and particularly relative to Morgan Stanley one of its old rivals that's doing a lot better for some time. And then lastly, there needs to be a kind of crystallizing event or a sense that things are coming to a head. And in this case, we had Goldman do the U-turn on some of its consumer banking ambitions. And then we also had a bad set of results from the company. And I think when that came together, as well as hearing a lot of people we speak to wonder and ask questions about Goldman and want to discuss it with us, it's usually a sign that a story is hot to trot. And Alice, tell me, what kind of response have you had from your sources and people you talked to about the Goldman piece you did?
1: It certainly has solicited a lot of feedback from my sources or readers and people that I talk to. There seems to be something irresistible to Goldman's sort of competitors or people that follow the firm closely about it being in a difficult position. And so a lot of the feedback I've had has been revelling in Goldman's misfortune, people saying that what we wrote was sort of a true, but also kind of brutal. And certainly more so than usual with a story, people have reached out to give that kind of feedback. What about you? Have you noticed any Interesting stuff in our letter bag or on social media or anywhere.
4: Well, yeah, we've had quite a lot of comments on social media and including a few and I should add in, in Goldman's favour saying it's still the place bright young things want to work at. And the thing that struck me is I've had several text messages from former Goldmanites who I know who tend to watch the former employer closely and have enjoyed the coverage and felt that it has uh, crystallised something they might have been thinking, including a message from someone who said, you know, the thing about the Goldman people I meet is they're so full of themselves. And they really enjoyed seeing us do something of a critique of the company, hopefully a rational and, and balanced critique too.
1: To start understanding the change at Goldman Sachs, it is important to understand where the firm came from. So I've been looking into its origin story. Goldman Sachs looms large over Wall Street. The firm can trace its roots to 1869 and to Marcus Goldman, a Bavarian immigrant who set up shop selling promissory notes, an early version of commercial paper or short-term corporate debt, from a basement office on Pine Street in downtown Manhattan. In 1882, his son-in-law, Samuel Sachs, joined him And three years later, so did his son, Henry Goldman. Marcus Goldman's solo enterprise became a partnership with a new name, Goldman Sachs & Co. The firm expanded. It opened offices across America and in Europe. It joined the New York Stock Exchange and started taking companies like Merck and General Foods public. In the 1930s, in the midst of the Great Depression, Sidney Weinberg, who rose through the ranks of Goldman from a janitorial assistant, took the helm as senior partner. He steered the firm through the perils of the Great Depression, described here by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in a speech in 1933. We have had a
2: bad banking situation. Some of our bankers have shown themselves either incompetent or dishonest in their handling of the people's funds. They had used the money entrusted to them in speculations and unwise loans.
1: Then, under his stewardship, Goldman Sachs became the firm we recognize today, the leading full service investment bank in the United States. Mr. Weinberg earned himself the nickname Mr. Wall Street. He was well connected politically, advising President Roosevelt and his successors on all kinds of topics. Mr Weinberg was Goldman's senior partner for 40 years, until he died in 1969, the year Goldman turned 100. In the decades that have followed, the firm has often grappled with how to retain the reputation and power it built under the Weinberg era, while adapting as the world has changed around it. The tension in that swirled around the firm's decision to go public in the late 1990s. Here is Jim Weinberg, Sidney Weinberg's son, who was a partner for two decades in a clip from a video series made for Goldman Sachs by Stiebel Chase Productions to celebrate its 150th anniversary in 2019.
2: The root of my conviction was that what we had going was an extraordinary group of people who were joined at the hip, you might say, by an extraordinary culture. And the private nature of the business, the partnership, impelled us all to work together and i thought that as a public company
0: that would change
1: ultimately other pressures usurped these concerns here is tim O'Neill, who retired from goldman sachs in december 2022 after 32 years as a partner describing the decision to go public on the firm's anniversary video
4: For the firm to stay relevant, we had to change our form of organization, not our culture, but our form of organization. If we'd stayed as a private partnership, we wouldn't be relevant to the capital markets because we wouldn't have the stability of a balance sheet that we actually need to participate in the capital markets.
1: On May 4th, 1999, Goldman made its debut at $53 a share. In many ways, more than two decades later, Goldman is in a similar moment of transition or adaptation now. The ways in which the world has changed after the financial crisis have crimped the profitability and allure of many investment banking and trading activities, and so Goldman has pushed into other businesses. It has also become more transparent. Even though Goldman went public, the firm divulged little information to outsiders. It didn't hold investor days, for example. When I interviewed John Waldron, their chief operating officer, in January, he said, We had been a public firm for 21 years and we had never done an Investor Day before. I always felt like that Investor Day, the first Investor Day, was kind of like a re-IPO, where you had a new management team and we were embarking upon a reasonably fundamental shift in strategy. Is that shift paying off?
3: So Alice, it sounds like the decision to do an investor day was intended to be a bit of a reset. But has it worked?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. In the the heyday of Goldman, it didn't really have to bother with this kind of groveling to its shareholders because they were just so grateful to have a piece of the action. But a, a decade of post-crisis stagnation elapsed, and it had stepped down from that pedestal Bid. In some ways, it has paid off, and in others, it's gone pretty spectacularly wrong. But we will hear a
2: bit more on that in a minute. On the topic of adaptation more broadly, there's an excellent long piece in the paper this week on reindustrializing America. I know Charlotte Howard, our colleague who wrote the piece, has spent months examining the big bets that the Biden administration has taken to decarbonize, to revive domestic manufacturing and bolster national security and I for one am very much looking forward to reading the piece.
3: Yeah, I've been uh, obsessing over the the whole Adani story this week. If you're just catching up with this, this is the story about Hindenburg, a short seller, doing a big report on Adani and these huge share price collapses in Adani's many, many Indian companies. It's a really fascinating story, and I think the sort of consequence of this, given that he's... Asia's richest man and, you know, an enormous figure in the Indian both business and political scenes. Yeah, very excited to see what we've got on that.
1: To read all of our coverage of Adani and also Charlotte's excellent piece, you will need to be a
2: subscriber to The Economist. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes to this episode.
1: After the break, we will drill down into Goldman's business and look at how it's changed over time, as well as the mistakes it made that allowed it to be eclipsed by its rival, Morgan Stanley.
0: It's that time of the year.
1: Before the break, we took a walk through Goldman's 154-year history and heard how it came to be revered on Wall Street. But now I want to dig into how it fell behind some of its peers like Morgan Stanley. To do that, I spoke to Stephen Chuback Managing Director and Senior Analyst with Wolf Research. Hello, Stephen. Welcome to Money Talks.
0: Thank you, Alice. It's great to be here.
1: So you've been covering Goldman Sachs since before the financial crisis and we're looking at that firm during that time. Back when you started covering Goldman, what was your perception of the firm? How was it viewed on Wall Street?
0: Goldman at the time was viewed as like the premier pure play investment bank. It really had best in class, traditional investment banking in areas like M&A, ECM, DCM, had leading market share on the trading side. Essentially, they were perceived to be the smartest guys in the room as related to the traditional investment banking activities. And it did result in -in best-in-class returns, which they delivered pretty consistently. It also meant that they were able to trade or garner a premium valuation relative to some of their peers because they were growing faster, because they were taking more market share.
1: And if there was a secret source that Goldman had for achieving that kind of reputation and success... What do you think
0: it was? It's really twofold. I would say that Goldman's reputation was being best in class in terms of risk management. And you certainly saw them showcase that during the financial crisis, where despite lacking a strong funding or deposit base, we're still able to navigate what was an extraordinarily challenging and really unprecedented period for financial companies. But it really is a business where human capital matters. And so the quality of the folks, um, the level of talent that you have at the firm is really critical in trying to differentiate. Ultimately, it's about what's your competitive advantage, what's your informational advantage, and the quality or the caliber of the folks that can prosecute that to ensure that you can continue to gain market share.
1: When did things start to change for Goldman?
0: So during the financial crisis, they navigated what was an unprecedented, extraordinarily challenging period. But the problem was immediately coming out of it, then all of the politicians, the regulators had to say, how do we avoid having a repeat crisis? And so they introduced a lot of different reforms, which were really a direct attack on Goldman's business model. They increased capital requirements materially. They made it much more difficult to engage in complex derivative or trading activities which were highly profitable for the company and the informational edge or advantage that goldman could exploit historically was done through proprietary trading and that too was also banned under something called the Volcker rule and so you introduced all these different regulatory reforms where Goldman then had to look at their bread and butter businesses of uh, investment banking, but really trading in particular. And now they were going to have to reassess, you know, how they were going to charge for clients because capital requirements went up. How are they going to make money in areas outside of prop trading, which was since precluded? So that became like a very difficult period for Goldman, where they were constantly trying to pivot and reevaluate. How they were going to make money in some of these businesses under a very different regulatory regime.
1: And when would you say this firm really started to adapt to this new world in earnest? I note that they launched their consumer bank, which was seen as a reasonably sizable change in 2016.
0: So initially, Bowman tried to stick to their netting, didn't make any substantive or significant changes to the business model. But ultimately, the returns were continually coming under more and more pressure. And simultaneously, you were actually seeing some of Goldman's peers, like Morgan Stanley, who did pivot towards areas like wealth management, have far greater success. And it really wasn't until 2015, 2016, when the Goldman leadership at the time, under Lloyd Blayfine, decided we need to diversify away from investment banking and trading. Towards other areas like consumer banking where they felt they could have or develop some sort of edge.
1: And it seems like that push to adapt or diversify was even stronger potentially after leadership changed in 2018, David Solomon took over. So could you just talk a bit about what strategy for Goldman has been like under his leadership?
0: Yeah, so the, the big pivot under David was a recognition that they needed to generate more durable more sustainable returns, but the other significant change, and this was one from an analyst point of view, which was quite refreshing, Goldman historically had been incredibly opaque. and Part of the issue there was they didn't want to divulge their secret sauce, so to speak. Um, they didn't um, provide a lot of targets, but during good times when you're outperforming all of the peers, your investors care less about that. When you enter a challenging period and you're delivering subpar returns, then the expectation is, why? Explain why your returns have gotten so much worse. And I think what David really wanted to do is shine a light on the business, saying, historically, we hadn't provided enough transparency to the shareholder or investor community. We're going to do that going forward. So
1: other than the push into investment banking, what were the other areas where Goldman planned to generate those more durable returns?
0: So they were great in asset management and were actually great in alternative asset management too. That's like private equity, hedge funds. we we'll recognize that's the area of really great secular growth. A third is transaction banking and then wealth management. So they already had a pretty strong wealth management franchise, but they were serving a... You know, private banking, very affluent clientele, and they really wanted to move down market and felt that they could leverage their newer platform or consumer platform in Marcus to be able to not just tackle the very affluent, but even more going down to mass affluent and emerging affluent.
1: One of the things we talked about a lot is the volatility in Goldman's earnings. As an analyst, does that make your job harder, or uh, or is it something you've built sufficient spreadsheets to deal with now?
0: It certainly makes our job tougher, uh, given the volatility, but gives uh, my clients a reason to still pay us, right? So ultimately, we needed enough for at the end of the day. So I'm grateful for some of the earnings volatility in that regard.
1: Great. Stephen Tupac, thank you so much for joining the show.
0: No, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm back with The Economist, Patrick Fowles now. Patrick, thank you for sticking around. What do you make of Goldman's efforts to reinvent itself?
4: Well, the judgment I think our coverage and and your piece reached, I think, is is ultimately nuanced in the sense that here was a firm that after the financial crisis kind of did too little to to change and was really betting that ultimately its old business would come back. And it's true that in the last four years under a new CEO, it, it has tried to push harder on diversification, but also... The kind of reality is those efforts to diversify have not really worked particularly well. So you're left um, looking at the core business of Goldman Sachs. And there they have taken market share. It remains a very strong business in uh, MA advising and trading of securities. But the profitability overall of that business is very, very up and down. And, and the company rightly points out it's been okay on average, over the last few years, and also that the share price has caught up and uh, regained some of the relative underperformance in the years after the financial crisis. But the reality is investors are still ascribing a really quite low humdrum valuation to Goldman Sachs. And that doesn't mean the company is in huge trouble yet. But it does suggest that a storied, famous firm with its own mythology and legends, that that Culture and reputation is something that is at odds with the very mediocre pedestrian and humdrum valuation that the business is given. And I think that is ultimately the tension that your work has brought out and the tension ultimately that David Solomon, the boss of Goldman Sachs and the other people running the company are grappling with.
1: Yeah, I agree as you say, it was a nuanced position we came out in because its core businesses have done very well and they have done better under David Solomon. It's really relative to the sort of adaptation that Morgan Stanley has managed to achieve and the relative performance of its consumer lending business, which is really done quite poorly compared to sort of basically any consumer bank you want to compare it to. You know, people who've been doing this for decades, people who consumer lending startups who've not been doing it for very long. And their U-turn on that business is obviously embarrassing. Do you think there are any lessons that we can take from Goldman's potential fall from the pinnacle of finance for the industry more broadly? You know, what are the sort of bigger implications of this?
4: Well, I think there are some business model lessons. And then there's a kind of cultural lesson. And the business model lessons are some of the more obvious, some less so. I mean, the first is just that the regulation that came in place after the financial crisis, the capital rules have made the old Wall Street business structurally less profitable. And that's really clear and means even the best company arguably at doing trading and m advisory or, or one of the top firms really struggles to generate superior returns for its owners. Another lesson is just how globalization has crimped the ambitions of these firms or deglobalization, I should say, in the sense that in the glory years, particularly in the run-up to the financial crisis, you know, expanding globally gave them a huge runway they conquered Europe and then they were expanding in Asia. Whereas now there's much less growth opportunity there, and local firms in big new markets like China and India have got a lot more powerful. And then I think the last business model lesson is just that competing in these new digital markets is much harder than you think. So Goldman Sachs, with all of the resources, the brain power, the experience has found it really difficult to grow a big fintech business, a, a kind of digital banking business. And that's because the economics of that do tend to favor the big tech platforms in their various incarnations. And it's just not so straightforward for traditional businesses to waltz in there. But I think the kind of other lesson which is kind of cultural is, is about the kind of hubris and kind of culture of talking oneself up that is still obviously a big part of Wall Street. And I think in this case, you know, Goldman, which kind of exemplified some of those characteristics, it has been quite unhelpful, because it's meant the company I don't think has really gone through a stern self-examination of how it's going to adapt to some of those business model changes.
1: Yes, I agree. It feels as though the sort of heydays of Goldman Sachs, they were so dominant and so pleased with themselves about that, that it really has taken them much, much longer to acknowledge and realise that the world has changed. And this actually led to sort of one of our readers saying that they should probably seek out their uh, M&A bankers own advice. And they think they're so good at, at telling other firms how to run themselves, they should have looked harder at themselves as well, which was quite a nice idea. Patrick, thank you so much for joining the show.
4: Thanks for having me, Alice.
1: So, Tom, Mike, what do you
2: make of all this? Does Goldman Sachs seem humble to you? The fact that Marcus, this digital retail bank they launched, has been such a disappointment is really interesting to me. A few years ago when they first launched this, I was still working as a consultant, and the project was really hailed as this great, case study of an old economy firm like Goldman Sachs competing in the digital economy by effectively building something from a blank sheet of paper and doing that digital first and and unencumbered by the legacy mothership, so to speak. Uh, To some extent, I suspect the failure of Marcus comes down, at least in part, to the fact that retail banking is an industry with a lot of customer inertia, and which means it's been really hard for even all these new digital challenger banks to, to seize meaningful market share. But I also think there's a cautionary tale here about the risks of trying to build something from scratch in, in an area where, frankly, you don't really have a lot of pre-existing expertise.
3: Yeah, I think to me, there's something especially fascinating about corporate leadership and mystique and whatnot when it comes to banks, because when it's a manufacturer or a software development company or or a consumer facing company, there's a product or or something they have stumbled on that gives them a lead, maybe a piece of intellectual property, and, and everyone can see it, everyone knows what's giving them the edge. But with banks, a lot of that is almost sort of completely opaque. You don't get access. Most of their work is basically confidential, the investment banking side. You get these reputations built up and that's important because, you know, you're trying to procure talented people into the bank. And this is a sort of self-fulfilling cycle where you build up a sort of vibe around an institution like Goldman Sachs. And that means in banking, you do see these incredible falls from grace. For me, a sort of Asia-focused example, if you go back to 1989, four of the largest five companies in the world by market cap were Japanese banks. These days, MUFG, uh, Japan's largest bank, which itself is a merged entity made up of what were once much larger banks. It doesn't even make it into the top 100 globally. Um, The mystique is gone. You know, nobody cares what the Japanese banks are doing anymore except me. Um, So Goldman certainly hasn't got to that (laughs) level yet, but you never really know with banks because again, so much of it is sort of opaque, so much of it is hidden. And what about you, Alice? You have presumably thought about this far too much over recent months. I get into a bit of a, a fugue state coming out of writing a briefing. What are your thoughts?
1: The fugue state means no thoughts. No, no, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I agree with you on that sort of it's, it's all reputation and mystique. It obviously sounds very trite when the leaders of a company say that it's sort of all the people that they employ. But it really is with something like M&A banking or, or advisory services. So Goldman has gone through this period of stagnation. It's trying to adapt. Its market cap has been eclipsed by that of its old rival, which has done a better job of doing that. But as of now, it sort of still retains its best in class or number one positions in a lot of the things that you really think of as the, the bread and butter for Goldman. So things like the m advisory, various other investment banking lead table metrics. So the, the question really is, do some of these mishaps in the consumer bank... Does the fact that this sort of rival has had a better strategy and eclipsed them mean that they're going to lose out on being able to attract the very best talent to work for them in favour of going to some other firms? And will eventually their sort of mishaps in in the new things they've tried to do and the ways they've tried to adapt ultimately affect the real bread and butter for Goldman? And it is a sort of big unanswered question because it, it really hasn't so far, but it's easy to see this logical argument as to sort of why it, it might. And I do know a few people who've been applying for investment banking internships later in their career, you know, post MBA ones, and they're applying to both Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. It's much more of a toss leaning Morgan Stanley than I think it would have been in 2009 or, or any time before that. So it's interesting. I think we'll have to to wait and see. So I, I guess I, I'd count Goldman uh, down, but not out. With that, shall we pivot to our stats of the week?
3: Yes, absolutely. I will go first. And my statistic of the week is a negative 31.4%. And that is the pretty astonishing figure for the year-on-year change of South Korean exports to China. Uh, that's year on year in January. Um, South Korea is having a bit of a rough time of it on that front at the moment. Their exports are down pretty sharply, but I think they're mostly suffering from this real, real dip in activity in the sort of East Asian industrial nexus, particularly Chinese demand collapsing there. Obviously, a lot of South Korean companies had a great pandemic selling electronics and memory chips to the sort of home, computer, PC, laptop, smartphone, boom. uh, Whenever i was staying inside, they're seeing the flip side of that now and it's not particularly pretty.
2: Sticking with the theme of businesses that had a boom during the pandemic but have since run into a bit of trouble, my statistic this week is $33 billion and that's the revised upper bound for Meta's capital expenditure this year. Originally, they said they were going to spend as much as $39 billion on CapEx this year, but this week they revised that down after some ongoing pressure from shareholders. But just to give you a bit of perspective on that number, that is more than the CapEx budgets of Apple, Tesla, Twitter, Snap, and Uber combined. And it's more than double what Meta spent on on CapEx in 2020, which just just gives you a bit of a sense of, of how wild Zuckerberg has gone with his spending.
3: Yeah, that number is absolutely eye-popping. I actually saw it and thought of um, TSMC, the, the Taiwanese semiconductor company, which has CapEx, I think, in a, in a pretty similar region to that. Obviously, they're they're sort of inventing all the world's advanced chips rather than trying to get Mark Zuckerberg's legs right in the metaverse. But um, <laughs> but both very important missions, obviously.
1: Yeah, returns on capital at TSMC, my, uh, my slightly outclassed those sort of meta. Um, my set of the week is is uh, one I've pinched from uh, Harper's magazine, which is nine times. And that is the factor by which married couples age 25 to 34 have a sort of greater median net worth than their single peers. So your net worth is nine times higher on the sort of median if you're married than if you're single, if you're age 24 to 35, which I thought was uh, an absolutely enormous premium.
2: So... uh, I guess, get shacked up, everyone. That just feels like a double whammy to single people. <laughs> Not only are you single, but you are also a ninth as wealthy.
3: Yeah, we can, we can do a leader on that. You know, get, get married, you losers, or something like that. But everyone will love that one. That'll be good.
1: Uh, and with that,
2: uh, I think all that is left to do is give our thanks to Stephen Chubak And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
3: And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com.
1: Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth.
2: Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim.
3: And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell.
2: I'm Alice Forward. I'm Tom Lee Dublin.
3: I'm Mike Bird. And
1: this is The Economist.